The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure that we are prepared for worship and fellowship with the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, and ready to go forward. To make sure we are, we always take a few moments silent prayer, so if necessary for you to uh, uh, confess your sins, we can use 1 John 1, 9 and recover fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word this morning, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, it is your word that illuminates the thinking of our soul. It is the Holy Spirit who helps us see how these things that we study apply to our own lives, that we may be challenged to put them into application, that we may grow to spiritual maturity, that you might be glorified as your character is developed in us. Now, Father, as we study your word, help us to see these things and pray that we would be challenged by the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. We got down through the second verse last time. And we are studying a passage that is often chosen as a proof text or as a source for dealing with the whole issue of church discipline. And I don't think this is a passage that has anything at all to do with church discipline. This is a passage, especially if we look at the context, that really focuses on how we as believers are to deal with those in our periphery, those with whom we have uh, relationships, when there are problems that come up that are the result of carnality. The whole concept of having to restore a, someone who is caught in a sin indicates that this person, there's a person who gets into carnality and someone that we are close to. We know that at the moment of salvation, we're identified with Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, and we are entered into a permanent, eternal union with Christ, which is exemplified in the top circle, union with Christ. In the bottom circle, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, But the instant we sin, we commit any act of sin, whether it's mental, whether it's verbal or overt sin, we're out of fellowship because we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. This doesn't mean that we lose salvation. It's just that our fellowship with God the Father, our walk in the light, this is the realm, the bottom circle is the realm of walking in the light. Our walk in the light has been ended, and we are now walking in darkness under the influence of, of the sin nature walking according to the flesh, as per Galatians 5.16, which that whole passage from 5.16 to 25 we just studied, and we saw the difference between walking by means of the Spirit and walking by means of the flesh. These are the only two options 
we have available for us, and every one of us has the same, or quantitatively, or excuse me, qualitatively the same sin nature. Therefore, there is no room for pride or arrogance in the Christian life at any point, whether you're spiritually mature or whether you're a spiritual infant. There's no basis at all to look down your nose at any other believer when they fall into any category of sin. The idea of a believer being caught in a trespass, we saw uh, that comes from the Greek word pralambano, which has the idea of not detecting, not catching someone in the sense of uh, they've got some sin in the life and now somebody perceives it and they catch them in the act of some sin. It has more the idea of being caught in a trap. James uses the illustration of sin being like a snare that entraps us. And we are continuously being pulled by our sin nature. The lusts of the flesh, the, the uh, lust patterns of the soul drive us towards autonomy. That's the basic orientation of our soul because we're fallen creatures. And the whole issue in the spiritual life is a spiritual battle against the uh, control of the sin nature, which is broken at salvation. In phase one, we are saved from the penalty of sin. In phase two, we are saved from the power of sin. As we grow in the Christian life, we're no longer shackled to the sin nature, but we can reach down, as it were, pick up those shackles and put them back on whenever we choose to sin. It's volitional now. And what we have to do is decide to break that power, and that only comes through applying the Word of God, learning, assimilating, applying doctrine under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And as we do that, we are delivered experientially from the power of sin. But that is based upon what took place at the cross, Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the sin nature has been positionally crucified, but it is not experientially realized apart from our volitional decisions to reject that temptation. But sometimes we respond positively to the temptation of the sin nature. I can tell by looking at some of you that is not very frequent. Others of you, well, we're all concerned about others of you. But we do uh, realize we do have a sin nature that traps us. And that's the idea there. Even if a man is caught by any trespass, this is a believer that has been trapped by some sin. It may be a single sin. It may be continuous sin in their life. You who are spiritual, restore them. And we saw that the concept here of spirituality is not so much the concept of, of spiritual maturity, nor is it simply being filled with the Holy Spirit. I think this is something that we have to clarify because sometimes when we communicate that spirituality is being in this bottom circle, that when we're out of fellowship, we're in carnality, as soon as we confess our sins, we're restored to this bottom circle status where we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that that means we're spiritual. That means we are in a position where we are being filled with the Spirit and we are potentially spiritual, but we're not walking by means of the Spirit. So we have to distinguish between the status of spirituality, which is being filled with the Spirit, and the practice, which is walking. Now, the context clearly shows that we're talking about forward momentum in the spiritual life. This may even be an immature or, or a baby believer or an infant believer, but this is a believer that is spending uh, as much time as possible in fellowship, that is, in the status of spirituality, filled by means of the Spirit, and practicing the doctrine that they're learning so that they are walking by means of the Spirit. And I drew this diagram last time, a slanted line indicating our growth from left to right, from spiritual infancy. At this point, we are born again, spiritual birth. Here we read spiritual maturity, and we have two sides. The top side of this graph is the side of the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
The other side is the sin nature. Now, as we grow, when we're a new believer, we don't know much doctrine. And remember, spiritual growth is always related to knowledge of doctrine in the soul. One of the problems that I have challenged people on is the assumption that they'll see somebody who has made a profession of faith and they live a certain lifestyle, and they say, well, how can that person be saved uh, and do what they're doing? And the automatic assumption is that if you're, you're saved, and this is a hidden assumption that underlies the thinking of a lot of people. I think it's rather superficial, and it's based upon an idea that's been around Christianity for years that is wrong, and that is that somehow at spiritual birth, at regeneration, the sin nature is somehow uh, less sinful than it was prior to salvation. It's a confusion of having the shackles broken and removing the power. And I think somehow it's just the verbiage that we use to describe it. But there are many people who get the idea that, if you, that after salvation, there are just some things you won't do or you won't do them as much or you won't enjoy them as much as you did when you were an unbeliever or you aren't truly saved. And that's a false assumption because it forgets the fact that Let's use an example here. You have um, a person down here. We'll just call him Joe Black. And they're in a position. They go through life, and they are involved in all kinds of problems. They've got drug abuse. They've got criminality, all kinds of things in their background. Not a hint of an understanding of any establishment truth, authority orientation, or anything else in the life. And then 18, 19 years of age, point X, they hear the gospel and they respond to the gospel. And the person who gives them the gospel not only communicates a little bit about the gospel, but some spiritual life truth, SL, spiritual life truth. So this guy has some doctrine to apply. Over here, we'll say you have a guy, we'll just call him Pete. And Pete, let's say Pete Smith, okay? Okay. Now, he comes along, and he's got the same kind of background, and somebody witnesses to him at this point, and he trusts the Lord. But the person who witnesses to him doesn't give him any spiritual life doctrine whatsoever. All he knows from the Scripture is Acts 16.31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So he has nothing to apply in terms of the spiritual life. Now, just for the sake of illustration, let's say Pete just goes his own way, and because he has no other doctrine, he continues to live just as he did before he was saved because he doesn't know any better. There's nothing there for him to apply. Therefore, he's going to be living in pure carnality under the control of the sin nature without any concept of how to recover or that he's doing anything wrong because he doesn't have any biblical truth in his soul. No Bible doctrine in the soul. There is, uh, are no principles in the soul for him to apply. And therefore, because there is no content to apply, there can be no application. Spiritual growth is the result of application of doctrine. Without doctrine, there is no growth. So this person, Joe, Joe Black, can grow and have a modicum of spiritual, spiritual growth simply because he has learned some spiritual life truth. There will be, as a result of that, perhaps, some overt evidence in his life of his profession of faith. But this guy, Pete Smith, has no doctrine to apply, so there will be no evidence, minus E, in his life. So the fact that you have external evidence or don't have external evidence is no indication of whether or not there is actual salvation. Spiritual growth is always the result of application of doctrine. If you don't know any truth, you can't grow. And there are a lot of people, I think, that come to the Lord in this sense, and nobody ever gives them any spiritual life doctrine, no, no doctrine, no spiritual life truth, no sanctification doctrine, and so there's no growth. Now, back to our illustration. We have this young believer. He doesn't know anything, and so he spends maximum time way out here in carnality. But then as he grows, he's going to Bible class regularly, and he's learning a good bit of doctrine. He begins to apply it. So he's spending more and more time over here in the realm of the filling of the Holy Spirit, 
in spirituality, walking by means of the Spirit, than in carnality. And he may even get to a point where he is spending uh, 60, 70, 80% of his time over here walking by means of the Holy Spirit and not by means of the sin nature. But he is still classified as a baby believer because he doesn't know very much. Now, up here, as you advance, you get up towards spiritual maturity. You're still going to spend maximum amount of time walking by means of the Holy Spirit and a minimum amount of time walking by means of the sin nature. But a mature believer who is out of fellowship and walking according to the sin nature cannot fit the category of being spiritual. Because the category of those who are spiritual is to restore such a one by means of an attitude. We saw that pneuma there, translated spirit, can also mean attitude. And we're to do it in an attitude of gentleness, that is humility, prautes, the same concept that is found back in as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23, translated there gentleness as well. But it has to do with humility, which is grace orientation and authority orientation to God. Now, this is so important because nobody has any business getting involved in somebody else's life, trying to encourage them to rebound, to get back in fellowship, to go forward in the spiritual life, if they don't have grace orientation in their own soul. You have to get that far, otherwise you're going to be reacting to somebody else's sin instead of desiring to help them motivated by impersonal love. Grace orientation is comprised, first of all, of authority orientation to God. This means that you recognize that God is the authority. God's, uh, God's opinion, God's thinking is what matters, not our thinking. Therefore, it is God, God's view of sin, not our view of sin, that is at stake. That is authority orientation. Secondly, it involves humility. This is a recognition of dependence upon the plan of God and the work of Christ on the cross. In dependence, we know that, that um, God does everything for us and we do nothing for ourselves. So the issue when somebody fails in the spiritual life and somebody is involved in carnality and they get out of fellowship, that the issue there is not that we have to straighten them out so that, that we can gain brownie points or they can get, gain brownie points or anything like that. And it's a recognition that, but for the grace of God, there go I. I'm just as susceptible to that sin as they are, so I have to look at them from, look at what they're doing from God's viewpoint and not from my viewpoint. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's say we get in a position where we're fairly close to somebody and they get involved in some sin that has damaging consequences in our own personal life. Somehow it affects us. Remember when David sinned, in his sin of adultery, when he committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba and took her, and, they, and she became pregnant, then he tried to cover it up with uh, her husband, who was out on the battlefield where David should have been, that he called for Uriah, who was one of his top generals, to come back. Well, Uriah came back to the, to the palace to converse with David and have a conference, and, of course, the whole thing was designed as a cover-up because David wanted him to go home, spend the night with Bathsheba, and uh, have intimacy with her so that she would, could be able to say that the child was his child. But Uriah had too much integrity. Instead of going home, he said, My troops are out in the field. They're suffering hardship out there, sleeping on the ground. I'm not going to go home and uh, sleep in my bed at home and enjoy all of the uh, privileges of being a husband and being at home and, and all the comforts of home. So I'm going to just stay out here outside the palace grounds and sleep on the ground, just like my men back in the field. Well, of course, that upset David's plans to cover up his sin. And so he sent a private message. Incidentally, he sent it by Uriah, knowing that he had such integrity that he wouldn't open up the message. So he sent the message by Uriah to his major general in the field, who was Joab. And in the message, he told Joab that the next time he attacked the city, that he was supposed to put uh, Uriah right at the forefront of the troops to make sure that in the heat of the battle, uh, Uriah, there would be a great chance that Uriah would be killed. So David's guilty of conspiracy. He's guilty of murder. He's guilty of covering up his sin. There are all kinds of things that are going on in that. 
and he hurt all categories of people. He hurt the nation as a result of the divine discipline he went through over the course of his life. There, were, there was collateral damage in the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. The entire nation suffered as a result of his particular, his particular sin. But when David confesses his sin in Psalm 51, David says that it is against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, this is a very important issue for us to realize in personal relationships. When somebody does something that hurts us, somebody does something that either physically hurts us or emotionally hurts us or or somehow they have betrayed us or maybe they insult us or they uh, react towards us in some way, we want to take it personally that you've sinned against me. We don't sin against one another. Sin is a theological category that is, by definition, an abrogation of the absolute character of God. Now, we may do something that offends someone else and that hurts someone else, and it may be necessary at times to apologize and to straighten out that relationship, but that's not what sin is talking about. Sin is against God. And so when we sin, or someone sins and we hurt or hurt as a result of that, then in humility, we have to recognize that that sin is ultimately an issue between that believer and God and the effects that it has on us, while it may be devastating, it may be painful, it may even involve, in the case of criminality or murder, the loss of someone very dear to us, it can be extremely horrible, but the fact is that the sin is against God and it's not against us, and that provides the basis for forgiveness, the use of impersonal love, uh, genuine forgiveness, the absence of any uh, bitterness, the absence of any vindictiveness, revenge motivation, the absence of any hatred. It destroys the sin nature thrust towards fear and anxiety in those relationships because we recognize that the real dynamics here in this whole situation, have to do with this other person and God. And that our relationship, while it's not irrelevant or not unimportant, it's not related to the fact that it's sin. The issue here was what's best for the other person, and that is always the issue in impersonal love. The criterion in impersonal love is not how I feel about this person. It's not how much I like this other person. The issue in impersonal love is always the character of God and the work of Christ. It's not so much that I want to deal with this person in terms of who and what I am, because at times when when I'm carnal, that can't be the criteria. The issue must be who God is and what Christ did on the cross. That's always the model. We're going to see that when we look at a couple of verses, that we're to forgive other people because of the way God, for Christ's sake, forgave us. That's the example that we are to put into practice. So the issue, therefore, is restoration because we're concerned about the other person's life. Even if it's a criminal act, for example, someone commits murder, and uh, let's say a particularly heinous example would be that somebody uh, abuses and murders your child. For a parent, that would be one of the most horrible things to get past, and yet the mandate from Scripture is that when you're operating on impersonal love, you face that problem and you avoid converting that outside pressure into stress in the soul by exercising impersonal love. And therefore, you won't give in to hatred and revenge motivation and all of those other things. That doesn't mean that that justice shouldn't apply and that they should get off scot-free. That person should still go through the the, um, judicial system. But the issue should be that you're concerned for their spiritual restoration. Now, in that example, it would be asking too much. And it would be the wrong circumstance for you to be the one concerned with restoration personally. But you should still ultimately be concerned with their restoration, if that criminal is a believer, with their restoration to fellowship and to advancing spiritually. So that is our calling. That is why in the Gospels Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Now, that's where it really gets difficult because it's one thing to say that we love and can show that kind of 
of uh, attitude towards someone that we like, someone we admire, someone who does something to us that is beneficial or someone who can help us out or just someone who really hasn't hurt us. It's when we're involved in some sort of circumstance where we have truly been hurt or harmed by the actions of someone else in their carnality that we do not make that carnality an issue because we recognize that's ultimately an issue between them and the Lord and that has to be resolved uh, by getting them back in a position of fellowship. So the issue is going to be looking at people for what's best for them in the long run. Now that would also include in a criminal act that they get executed for their crime because that's a divine mandate, but that's part of spirituality. So justice is different from personal vindictiveness. You know, I always hate it whenever you get these times when uh, some criminal is going to be executed and they always come up with some kind of vengeance motif that underlying, um, that, that interpreting the passage eye for an eye as a, uh, as a vindictiveness. That's not the issue at all underlying capital punishment. It has nothing to do with using a judicial system to uh, gain retribution or revenge on somebody who's killed somebody. That's asinine. The issue is that somebody who reaches the level of committing murder has made so many previous decisions in carnality in their own soul, and the cumulative effect of all those decisions has so disrupted their own soul that they are now like a malignant growth in the body of the human race. And they need to be cut off and removed judicially because they have forfeited their right to life. It has nothing whatsoever to do with vengeance. And yet you always get these people who get on the news and they start reacting to this and they say, well, just a form of vengeance. You even get pro-capital punishment people talking that way and it just shows that they don't understand the issue whatsoever. It has nothing whatsoever to do with vengeance. Vengeance has no place in justice. True objective justice has nothing to do with personal issues of vindictiveness, revenge, or getting back at someone. So the issue in terms of personal things, that's why this same thing came up judicially when we had this whole issue with the... um, Uh, president in the last year and you would hear people talk about well we ought not do anything because because we've forgiven him see forgiveness is a personal issue letting someone off judicially when there's a possibility that they have violated law is another issue forgiveness is not a legal category it's a personal relationship category so you can forgive someone on the one hand and push hard in the judicial system for their uh, conviction and execution, on the other hand, without it being motivated by revenge or vindictiveness. Those are two opposites. And yet, the way we think, because we've been so impacted with our fuzzy, feel-good, psychobabble culture, that those are uh, uh, opposites and you can't do both of them. Well, the Scripture says that you can and that you should. That you should push for justice and leave personal issues out, and personal issues always relate to the category of forgiveness, and we forgive one another because of what Christ did on the cross. So six one talks about the fact that if a man is caught by a sin, by his sin nature, you who are spiritual, those who are walking by means of the Spirit, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, and that means pointing them in the right direction, encouraging them to use 1 John 1, nine, the grace recovery procedure, and to advance in the spiritual life, but watching out lest you be tempted. Be tempted to what? Be tempted to react to their sin by being arrogant, challenging one another, envying one another in 526. It's so easy. It's not just what you do, it's how we do it. And that's so important, how we approach somebody so that our manner does not reflect arrogance and self-righteousness. Because when it does, even though we might be right, isn't it amazing? We've all had that experience where somebody picks up on our underlying self-righteousness and what they do is they react. They become defensive. We challenge them and they immediately sense that that arrogance and that self-righteousness and so they react and instead of solving a problem, you've just created a problem. We recognize that 
that in the realm of, of uh, relationships, there are different spheres of intimacy and that people have a right to, to privacy. But the closer you get in a relationship with someone, the more you voluntarily restrict your privacy. And so if you're very close to somebody, for example, they're a very good friend, you have a certain level of intimacy with them, and uh, you, get, you do something and they say, hey, wait a minute, maybe we ought to straighten this out. No, 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 I've got the right to privacy. That's an abuse of the doctrine of privacy. Privacy is not a doctrine designed to give you the right, to give you any rights towards covering up sin in the life and not dealing with sin in the life. See, that's an abuse of the, and a misunderstanding of the doctrine of privacy. Privacy means you have the right to deal with issues between you and the Lord, but we're not living in isolation from one another in the body of Christ. And so we ha- we're involved in relationships. We have relationships with spouses, with children, with uh, co-workers, with employees and employers, with other members of the church. And to the degree that we have a relationship with them, at times we're called upon or it may be necessary to straighten somebody out. And sometimes this can be uh, uh, deal with a major issue, and sometimes it's just a very casual thing. Well, you know, you see somebody blow their top and they get mad, and you just say, well, okay, now let's uh, grace, use our grace recovery procedure, take a couple of minutes, straighten things out, and go forward. And you just sort of laugh about it, but you don't make a big issue about it or challenge them. So it involves many different areas. Now, point or verse 2 says that we are to bear one another's burdens. We are to bear one another's burdens, and this uses the Greek imperative, bastadzo, and it's a present active imperative, which means that this is standard operating procedure in the spiritual life. Whenever you have a present imperative in the Greek, that indicates something that is a general rule or precept designed for character building. In contrast to that, you also have the aorist imperative, and the aorist imperative is just stressing within the context the priority of the command. So a present tense indicates that this is supposed to be a general principle of the spiritual life, that we are to uh, bastadzo, which means to physically lift, carry. It is used figuratively for the concept of enduring, to put up with weaknesses in other people, to carry something away or to remove it. And what this suggests here in this context is that believers are to uh, help one another, encourage one another as part of the law of Christ. And we've already seen in this context that the law of Christ here is the principle, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, one of the things that we need to realize here is that this principle, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, comes from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 19, or excuse me, Leviticus 19, 18. And so this was a principle in the Mosaic law. Now, in the Old Testament dispensation, people were not filled with the Holy Spirit. So the only basis for fulfilling the law of loving your neighbor as yourself was out of man's own innate ability. And that's why it's such a miserable failure under the Old Testament economy. In fact, one of the issues that's brought out when you look at the Old Testament economy and the failure of the Holy Spirit is to show that man on his own cannot produce that which God has designed for him to produce in his life. It's impossible. So the spiritual life demands and the spiritual life basis for the Old Testament was really just based on the faith rest drill and the whole issue of just trusting God. It was not a spiritual life that was driven by a dynamic of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit was only given to a few people in the Old Testament. I think probably no more than 60 or 70 people in the entire Old Testament dispensation were ever filled with the Holy Spirit. And there it had nothing to do with their spiritual life. It had to do with giving them the skills and wisdom they needed to fulfill their leadership responsibilities in the nation Israel, which was a theocracy. A few kings were filled with the, were anointed by the Spirit, were filled with the Spirit. A few um, prophets were. Some of the craftsmen who built the tabernacle and temple were like Aholiab and Bezalel. And so the, the uh, spiritual life there did not have to do with, with um, the Holy Spirit. So there was only a certain level of application possible 
for this principle in the Old Testament. They couldn't get very far. And what happens, happens in John chapter 13, there is a shift. Turn with me to John 13. And we'll see a remarkable shift that takes place in the plan of God. John 13, 34. John 13, 34. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, notice that there are three times in these two verses that Jesus says that we are to love one another. New commandment I give you, that you love one another. That's the first time. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's the second time. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, when the Lord says something once, we ought to pay attention because once is all that's required. When He says something twice, we really ought to raise our eyebrows and recognize this is really significant. But when He says something three times in one statement, it means that this is an absolute, ultimate priority in life. We are to love one another. Now, he says it is a new commandment. A new commandment. And the Greek word there is kainos, which indicates that something that replaces the old. So there is a replacement of the old mandate here. Now, Leviticus 19.18 simply said that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. But that was not fully possible. The most that can be done there, because there's no Holy Spirit energizing that, is a certain secondary level of application. And then in John 13, 34, Jesus raises the stakes and says that this is a new commandment. And then we learn from Galatians 5 that this is a production of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then in comparing Galatians 5, 13 through 15 with James chapter 2, 8 through 10, we realize that this is now called the royal law. So that there is an, a change. Leviticus 19.18 is the underlying principle, but it is transformed in the church age to an overriding characteristic of the royal family of God. This is a love that is not based on anything of value, anything of attraction, anything of benefit in the object of love. There are many believers, and you'll run into them in life, if you haven't already, that are not very attractive to you. Their personality is very different. Maybe their background, their training, their cultural heritage, whatever it may be, is not something that is very attractive to you. Maybe they are, uh, maybe their personality grates on your personality. Uh, you just don't like them. That does, that's not the issue here. The issue here is not what is in them. The issue is Jesus Christ. Notice. The model is, even as I have loved you. So how has Christ loved us? Christ loved us because He gave Himself as a substitute for the church. Jesus Christ left heaven through the incarnation. And He willingly limited Himself, lived as a man... Then he went to the cross where he died as our substitute for our sins spiritually. And then he ascended to heaven after the resurrection. Three days in the grave, resurrection, and then to heaven. This exemplifies his kind of love. This is the kind of love that is to be characteristic of the believer's relationships with everybody around him. This is what enables us as believers to honestly, objectively face problems in our relationships. See, in, in, a lot of times with unbelievers, they have to either go into some kind of denial, they have to just say, well, that's the way so-and-so is, and they rationalize it away, but they can't really honestly and objectively deal with ugly things that are in a relationship, and that's why often they, they, the result is that those relationships are destroyed whenever there's any kind of, of uh, friction or sin that enters into it because they can't have the kind of objectivity that the believer has. So we can look at life in all of its 
uh, ugliness objectively, and we can respond in true, impersonal, unconditional love because the issue is not us. The issue is not how does it affect me. The issue is not how do I feel about it. The issue is what does God say about it. The issue is that the sin affects Him. And the result is that now because the basis is no longer who and what we are, the issue is no longer how it has affected me. The, we've removed all arrogance, all self-orientation from the issue so that now we can have true forgiveness. Revolutionizes our whole concept of relationships. Now we're learning what it means to look at life from the divine viewpoint and not from the human viewpoint. We're looking at life through the way God has defined it, not how we want to define it. Now, in this command that Jesus gives, he says that we are to love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And this word for one another is the Greek word, alelon. A-L-L-E-L-O-N. And it simply means, as it's accurately translated, one another. So we need to examine a few passages to talk about this responsibility. It is from one believer to another believer. Now remember, this is not based on attraction. It's not based on what we're going to get out of the relationship. It's not based on how that other person makes us feel. It is simply based on who Jesus Christ is and what He has done for us. So let's look at a couple of examples. First of all, Look at Philippians 2.3. Philippians 2.3. Go back past Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. There it is a prohibition to remove self-centeredness, self-absorption from the life, as well as empty conceit. Now, the word for selfishness is eretheia, but we have an interesting word in the Greek for, for empty conceit. It is this word. Kenodoxos. K-E-N-O-D-O-X-O-S. Now, that's a familiar word. We found that. Back in our passage in Galatians chapter 5.26, do nothing, let us not become boastful. It's that same word, empty conceit. Let's not think that we have something of value. The value is never in us. The value is always in the Lord. So this concept relates us right back to grace orientation and the absence of arrogance and self-absorption in the life. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. So if you don't have self-absorption, then you can relate to other people as important in and and of themselves because they are uh, created in the image and likeness of God. Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And here we have a classic definition of love. It is putting focus on other people and the interests of others over our own interests. This is a definition, another way of saying that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And that's not saying, as modern psychologists have reinterpreted the verse, that you need to have a good self-image. And you need to learn to love yourself before you can love others. In fact, you ought to strike the whole concept of self-image from your vocabulary. It has nothing to do with the Scriptures, and it has everything to do with human viewpoint psychology. Anytime you have a word hyphenated with self, guess what we're talking about? Arrogance and self-absorption. That's all self-image is. Scripture says everybody has an excellent self-image. The issue is not their excellent self-image. The issue is their sinfulness. So we're to look out for the interests of others, and then what's the the example? How do we do this? Have this attitude 
phroneo, that is an objective way of thinking. Have this objective thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form, that is, in the inner essence or attributes of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped after, in contrast to Adam, who did seek deity. Remember, a serpent said, if you eat from the fruit, you'll be like God. So he said, I want to be like God. Jesus was God, but did not regard that equality something to be held onto, but instead emptied himself, which is from the, the Greek word kanao, which means to voluntarily restrict the independent use of his divine attributes. He didn't give them up. He just voluntarily restricted them during the period of the Incarnation. Not completely, because there were times when he did use them, but in accordance with the Father's plan. So you see, Jesus submitted himself to the Father's plan. That's humility, it's authority orientation. and drives us right back to grace orientation. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So when the Scripture says that we are to love one another even as I have loved you, this tells us how we are to love one another, even to the point of death on the cross. That's how Jesus Christ loved him. So we see this issue that the way to glorification is not making sure we get what is ours, when someone does something that hurts us, but doing what is best for them, and the result of that is exaltation. See, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of the cross, and God... The problem is that what we want to do when somebody hurts us is we want to make sure we get ours and we get justice and we get things straightened out, and that is self-exaltation. Rather than focusing on the issue from God's viewpoint and dealing with it in terms of grace orientation, restitution, and those issues, what we, which results in God glorifying, God being glorifying, and then He exalts us, we want to make sure we get what's ours moving from self-orientation. Now, that's Philippians 2. Let's turn back uh, one book to Ephesians and look at Ephesians 4.32. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind... Well, first of all, let's look at the context. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That means that we are not to get in carnality. We are not to sin because whenever there is any unrighteousness in us, whenever we sin, remember God is plus R, God is perfect righteousness. So whenever we sin, we fall short of His perfect standard And that always grieves the Holy Spirit. It violates His perfect righteousness. And so there is a break in our fellowship with the Lord. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, if we look at this contextually, what Paul is saying is that it is the bitterness, the wrath, the anger the clamor and slander, this is typical reaction when somebody hurts us. When something happens and someone offends us, something, someone insults us, someone does something that harms us, where we feel hurt, our reaction from the sin nature is what? Bitterness, anger, wrath, hatred, uh, slander. We start justifying ourselves and running them down through sins of the tongue and all categories of malice. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, this has to be put away from you. When you have that, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. The characteristic of the walk by means of the Spirit is in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. How? What's the standard? Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Notice, it's not saying that you love them based on who and what you are. Even if you're a mature believer, even if you're growing in the Lord and you have Christ-like character developing in you, that's still not the standard. The standard is just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So we always are to respond to people in love 
because of who God is and what Christ did for us on the cross. That's the model. That puts it on an objective, immutable foundation that never changes. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God also in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. And there we see that word, kind to one another. This is inside the royal family of God. We are to be kind to one another, and we are to forgive each other on the same standard as Christ has forgiven us. Now, since that involves every single sin we ever committed in our lives, and all of those sins are foundationally directed as a direct assault on the character of God, if God is willing to forgive us, then it is arrogance. It is absolutely unrestrained, self-destructive arrogance not to forgive other people when they commit some sin against us. We have to learn to get past it and to go forward. That does not mean, however, that in acts of criminality that you should necessarily uh, not let them be punished for criminal actions or things of that nature. But it does mean that we are going to forgive them, we're going to go forward, continue to love them, and not be involved in mental attitude sins of anger, vindictiveness, etc. Now, one other passage I want to look to is Colossians 3.13. So turn back past Philippians to Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. And so as verse 12, pick up the context, verse 12 says, And so as those who have been chosen of God, that is believers, holy and beloved, positionally sanctified, put on a heart, that is a mental attitude, cardia refers to that innermost part of the thinking of the soul, the heart of compassion. So we are to have a mental attitude that compassion is not an emotion. I want to make sure you get that. There is a sense in which we are compassionate and it's generated by emotion. But that is not a, an attitude of longevity. Tomorrow, after the initial shock wears off of whatever uh, gave rise to our compassion, we will, that sense, that emotion will be dulled. This is a mental attitude that won't be dulled. This is based on grace orientation, care and concern for people, and not just that initial reaction because we realize that something tragic has happened in someone's life. We're to have a mental attitude of compassion, kindness, once again, humility, gentleness, proutes again. We have both words, tapanaprasune and proutes, both Greek words indicating together an absence of emphasis on personal rights or self-absorption. So often we emphasize, well, I have a right to this, and that person did this to me. Don't I have a right to do that? And what you're saying is the issue is me, 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 and how it made me feel. And the Scripture says that that is just the opposite mentality that we should have as believers. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, bearing has to do with endurance. In the relationship, this is not saying, well, you did this to me, so you're out of your history. I'm not going to have anything more to do with you in my life. This is saying there's endurance and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, what's the, what's the standard again? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now let's go back to Galatians chapter 6. Bear one another's burdens. This is how we are to bear one another's burdens. And incidentally, the word there is alelon. So there is to be a concern for one another. There is to be genuine impersonal love, a desire for what's best in the other person based upon the model of God's love for us as exemplified in the work of Jesus Christ. We bear one another's burdens not by assuming responsibility for their uh, misdeeds or misbehavior, but by communicating to them, encouraging them with doctrine, communicating doctrinal principles to them so that they can go forward and get past the restoration. See, we have to define bearing one another's burdens in context. How, are we, how do you bear one another's burdens? By restoring such a one 
in a spirit of, or an attitude of humility. That is how it's done. It is not talking about assuming responsibility for other, pers- other people's actions. And by doing that, we fulfill the law of Christ. We're putting them first over against ourselves. And then we come to a, the underlying principle in verse 3. starts off with the Greek word gar, G-A-R. And this indicates because. See, we're going to explain the underlying principle. Because if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he is in self-deception. Now, the interesting thing we have to do here is a little exegesis. First of all, we have a first-class condition, if, and it is assumed to be true. So this is a first-class condition, if, for if, and it's assuming this is true, if you do think you're something, when you're nothing, you're in self-deception. Now, the word for thinking is a very important Greek word here. It is the word dokeo. D-O-K-E-O. Now, there's another word used in Greek for thinking, and it is phroneo. P-H-R-O-N-E-O. Now, (coughs) excuse me, over in Philippians chapter 2, when we saw that we were supposed to have this thinking in you like Christ, it was phroneo. It's objective thinking based upon Bible doctrine. Dokeo is subjective thought not objective thought, and there is always the hidden nuance here of arrogance. Arrogance and self-absorption is lurking in the background. Subjective thinking. For if anyone is thinking subjectively about himself, and of course when you're thinking subjectively about yourself, you're naturally going to think you're something when you're nothing. The underlying principle is because of sin we are all nothing. Well, there's a hymn that we sing by Isaac Watts. I noticed we, we sang it last week. I uh, can't remember the, the title of it now, but it talks about such a, Christ died for such a... And, and in our, our hymnal has, has sterilized the original text of that hymn because modern man doesn't like it. Isaac Watts wrote, He died for such a worm as I because he recognized that man is nothing because of sin. Now, the sterilized modern version is that Christ died for such a one as I, and that loses the thrust of the original thought that Isaac Watts had. And I've heard people declaim worm theology. The other breath they take, they start emphasizing self-image and how we all need to have a better self-image so we can't call ourselves and can't have worm theology. No, the Scripture says that we are nothing. We are not to think that we are something because we are nothing. That is self-deception. So we have self-absorption where we start thinking about everything in terms of who and what we are. Then we get into self-indulgence, which is the outworking of a self-absorbed mentality. Then we have to justify our actions that we take under self-indulgence and that's self-justification. And then we go to the next level, which is self-deception. And that's where we are. It is being divorced from reality and looking at everything from a, from a false grid so that we do not accurately understand or interpret the issues in life. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he is in self-deception. Verse 4, But let each one, this is the contrast, but let each one examine his own work. And here we have the Greek word, the verb, dokimazo. Dokimazo, D-O-K-I-M-A-Z-O. And it has to do with self-evaluation. Not from the viewpoint of trying to find things that are wrong so we can put ourselves down, so to speak, being self-critical from a negative perspective. Dokimazo always comes from a positive perspective, looking for what's right, not looking for what's wrong. But in the process, we are to evaluate ourselves, and if we discover sin in the life, then the result is 1 John 1, 9. This is the exact same phrase that we find in 1 Corinthians 11:28. 
describing the Lord's table, that everyone is to examine himself to make sure they're in fellowship with the Lord. So we're each to examine our own work. And the context here, of course, I think implies the necessity of rebound uh, if you find that you're out of fellowship. So that moves you from becoming boastful, challenging one another, envying one another, back into the category of walking by means of the Spirit and being spiritual. Let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. And the point here is that the believer is to focus on himself in a positive sense in terms of evaluating your own thoughts, your own actions, your own spiritual life. It is not your job to be comparing yourself to others, either from the sense of approving or disapproving the actions of others. It is not an issue of, well, I'm better than they are, or they're, they're not as good as me, or look how they're, they're falling apart, so now you have an attitude of arrogance and you want to go straighten them out. The issue here is that you are to examine your own life, and if there is something of value there, then you can boast about that in terms of the grace of God, but it is not in relationship to what other people are doing. So the focus needs to be on yourself and not getting involved in other people's business. Verse 5, for each one shall bear his own load. This means that each of us have responsibility in our own life towards whatever comes our way. Now, the interesting thing here is we have a, a, the phrase bearing our own load, and it sounds like it's the same thing as bearing one another's burdens in verse 2, and I think the King James translated it the same way, but it's a different word. This word here is uh, fortion, P-H-O-R-T-I-O-N, and it has to do with a, not the heavy crushing load of 6-3. This is a, this referred to the lighter pack that a foot soldier would carry, where he had just all of his equipment supplies on. It wasn't an over, over, over weighing or crushing burden. And this is the same word Jesus uses to describe the burden that he gives us, the responsibility that he gives us. Matthew 11:28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, that's the burden of, of sin and our guilt and punishment. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. So it is a recognition here. Bear your own uh, load, which is the load that the Lord gives us, which is based upon grace. He has done everything for us. He has taken the heavy load away and He has given us the responsibility to live the Christian life based upon grace orientation. Now, in terms of conclusion, when it comes to having to restore someone, we need to always remember the principle in Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Jesus says, And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? In other words, you look at something in somebody else's life and it's really small. It's not that important, and you do not notice the log, in other words, the major problem in your whole own life. Through self-absorption, we ignore what's going on in our own life, our own carnality, our own problems, and we put our focus on other people and try to straighten out their problems, which are really nothing compared to our own. Matthew 7, 4, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How do you take the log out of your own eye? By advancing in the spiritual life, walking by means of the Spirit. And as you do, the Scripture says we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we advance towards spiritual maturity, and that is how we become spiritual. We are walking by means of the Spirit, and that is identical to taking the log out of our own eye. And only when we are in the process of doing that which keeps us truly humble, then we can see clear enough to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. So the issue is always on the character of God and what Jesus Christ had done for us and on grace orientation and the complete absence of arrogance. Arrogance destroys all relationships. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for... Your word for the clarity of it helps us to understand how we are to deal with 
with those in our periphery, those we love, those who are our friends, those who are our acquaintances, those we have to work with, so that we can overcome the people tests that come our way. As people fail us, as people disappoint us, as people hurt us, as people react to us, Father, we are always told to love them, that steady, stable, immutable love as exemplified by you in sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. That is our model. When we have that as our model, then we can overcome any people-testing in life. Now, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is uncertain of their salvation, unsure of their eternal life, that they would take the opportunity right now to make that certain. You don't need to give up anything, walk the aisle, or give any money, or join the church. Scripture says salvation is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The issue is what Jesus Christ did, not what we do. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone, not works or moral reformation. Father, we thank you now for this time together. Pray that you challenge us with these things that we have learned this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.